Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 7th of October 2019 and this is episode 131. On this week's podcast, Colin Campbell talks about his book Engine of Destruction, which looks at the 51st Highland Division during the Great War. This has just been reprinted by Pen and Sword. I spoke to Colin from his home in Scotland. Colin, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? The reason I became interested in the First World War is really quite peculiar, and I'm sure you won't have come across it before. But when I was about 10 or 11, my dog had to be put down, and when the vet was coming, I was sent along the road to friends, uh, and they said, you might like to see these. And it was the War Illustrated for 1914-18, a weekly magazine in bound annual volumes. And that was me completely hooked on the First World War for the rest of my entire life. We're going to talk about uh, the 51st Division during the Great War today. Uh, and you've actually just um, had a history republished by Pen and Sword. And it was a territorial division. Can you tell me what a territorial division was and how it was different from a regular unit? Well, the territorial division, the territorial force, as it was then, was set up in 1908 by the Secretary of State for War, Haldane, who realised that there was a major European war probably coming, and he um, established the British Expeditionary Force of Regulars to go abroad. But for home defence, he set up 14 home defence divisions, and these were territorial, to defend the territory of the United Kingdom. And of these 14 divisions, two of them were Scottish, the Highland Division and the Lowland Division. And their, their task originally was to defend mainland UK. And their obligation that the soldiers had was to go to drills fairly regularly, locally, throughout the year. And then, if possible, to attend a fortnight's camp in the summer. Which, of course, to many of the boys in those days, it was a holiday to get away from a six and a half, or six day week or a five and a half day week and get away, you know, 20 or 30 or even 40 miles away from home uh, with the boys was um, a bit of a laugh. And so they, they volunteered for that, little knowing, of course, the way it was going to work out. Before we get into detail about what the 51st Division did during the Great War, can you tell us about some of the constituent units which actually made up the division before the outbreak of war? Well, every Highland regiment in the British Army was represented within the, 50, uh, the division at that time, uh, and all of them, bar one, served right through the whole war. Every Scottish Highland regiment, Kilted regiment, served in the division in some way or another in the course of the war. Uh, the area from which they were recruited, if you can imagine a line between uh, the Forth and the Clyde, where there is a canal, the Forth and Clyde Canal, everything north of that was 51st Highland Division territory, plus Renfrewshire, the west side of the county of Renfrewshire, which was represented by the six Argyllshire Highlanders, Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders, and it's quite interesting to compare them with the eight Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders, 
because the eight Argyles came from Argyleshire, and we're very proud of that. But because they were a very widespread rural unit, there were 40 different drill halls or drill sheds around their area to get to as many of the population as they could. Whereas in Renfrewshire, um, there were six centres for the territorial battalion there. And there was always alleged to be a bit of competition between the two because the eight Sargiles regarded themselves as genuine Highlanders. Whereas people coming from Paisley and Johnston and Barhead and Pollock Shaws in those days were really Lowlanders. So there's a little bit of tension between the two. Also, the eight Sargiles had Gaelic speakers. And of course, the Paisley-based Sargiles didn't. August 1914, the outbreak of war, the division is mobilised along with the other uh, divisions um, of the territorial force and dispatched to France. What does it do during the First World War? Well, first of all, uh, when, it, when mobilisation came along, they were mobilised and, and centred around Perth. And then they went by train to Bedford. And they were in Bedford from August really, 1914 until May of 1915 when they finally went overseas to France. And while they were in Bedford, I think the good people of Bedford were a bit alarmed at the notion of, you know, 18,500 Highlanders descending on them. But it appeared that they got on pretty well. And I think there's a certain amount of nostalgia in some parts of of Bedfordshire yet for the Highland Division. Uh, One of the things that happened was that they had a measles epidemic and the people from the, the north, which you would think was the healthy area, um, suffered very badly from measles. Uh, and people died of measles and a bit of scarlet fever at that time because the people from the north didn't have any immunities, unlike the people from the south of Scotland and the industrial areas who did. They did a bit of training, obviously, right through the winter of 1914 into the spring of 1915. But there were restraints on what they could do and where they could go to train. And another factor that was very difficult for them was that, as you probably know, towards the end of 1914, the British regular army in France was practically utterly exhausted. And they had to find more people to go to France. And between about October and February of 1915, Half the Highland Division's battalions were taken overseas to France, and the Highland Division suddenly found itself short of half its strength, uh, which was quite difficult because they were anticipating going to France. They were given two battalions of Black Watch and a brigade of people from Lancashire, which must have been a big culture shock for all concerned, and they went over to France in 1915 had no induction whatsoever to French warfare uh, before the first major battle at Givenchy as the second phase of the Battle of Festubert, where they suffered 1,500 casualties. Thereafter, they were into garrisoning the, the Western Front. They were the first British division to go down to take over the line from the French army in the Somme area, which of course became notorious or Bluke-Stroke famous the following year, 1916, they took over from French Breton troops, who, because they were from the, the Celtic fringe of Europe, just like the Highlanders, they got on enormously well with the, the French troops. And one Gordon officer said that messing with the French 
and to have meals and so on was, was far better than being in a Highland mess because the wine was an awful lot better. And so they garrisoned the area around about Tietdal and the famous parts of the, the Somme area. And um, they, they learned a trade there, just holding the line. But not only holding the line, because they'd been there before some of the other uh, new army divisions, they, they were able to introduce new army divisions to the Western Front, like the 18th Division, which became a very famous division under Max. And uh, they had a bit of fun kidding on the, the incoming soldiers. And... Uh, perhaps exaggerating some of the difficulties of life uh, for the raw rookies coming into the line. So they did that until the end of 1915 and then had a pretty good period of out of the line. And then in February of 1916, they, they made their way to the southern end of Vimy Ridge, an area called the Labyrinth, which was a terrible area that had been fought backwards and forwards over by the French and Germans. And one officer in the Seaforth Highlanders recounted that it took one machine gun crew three attempts to find and dig an emplacement for the machine gun because the first two places they dug, there were dead people uh, very close to the surface of the ground. It was a terrible area, very close proximity to the enemy, and mining was the big problem. And there was so much mining of the sixth Paisley-based Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders, for example, that they were removed from the Highland Division altogether and replaced by another Scottish battalion, and they were sent away to be a, a pioneer battalion elsewhere until they kind of recovered from the, the mining. Undermining was a big aspect of it. And, of course, patrol warfare was going on all the time to try and dominate no man's land. So they were, they were there until... The Battle of the Somme began on the 1st of July, and they were still there for another two or three weeks when they were drawn down into the Battle of the Somme. And like many other divisions, they were thrown into attack High Wood. And it took the British two months to take High Wood. And the Highland Division was very lucky. It was only on the Somme for 16 days, whereas the average for most other divisions was 20 at the end of 1916, they became the famous division that they did become because one area that had totally defeated the British at the northern end of the, the Somme front was Beaumont Hamel, near Serre, which saw off a lot of English soldiers from the northeast of England. It was thought to be a totally impregnable fortress that nobody could take it. And the Highland Division, with the 63rd Division, which was the naval division on the immediate right, and other British divisions on the left and further out to the right, the Highland Division was the centre of this attack. The attack took place on the 13th of November, uh, 1916, under uh, hideous conditions. It had been raining for days and weeks and end. The attack had been postponed several times. The, the roads up to the front line were so bad that they only allowed two trucks a day per division up the line. It was misty. It was disgusting. It was foggy. It was wet. Um, the first 
historian of the Highland Division, Bucher, in 1921, said, if you can imagine two football teams playing up to their knees in mud, you've got an idea of what it was like moving in that huge artillery bombardment. And the Highland Division followed the artillery bombardment 100 yards behind it. It was a creeping barrage. And a creeping barrage just did what that suggests. It leapt 100 yards at a time. And the infantry followed that, you know, three minutes per 100 yards or thereabouts. And that's to keep the enemy head down as they move forward. And it took, without the actual details, they, they managed to crack Beaumont Hamel and take Beaumont Hamel. Now, up till then, as I think you possibly know, the, the Highland Division was named and nicknamed after its commanding general, Harper, as Harper's Duds. Its divisional badge was an H and a D linked down the middle. So Harper's Duds, they called themselves, or Harper's Duds, they ceased to call themselves, and one soldier, as they came out of that battle, was heard to say, at least they can't call us Harper's Duds anymore. You know, they can't call us that anymore. And they had now become an elite infantry division. Well, Payne 1917 opened, and there was to be a big offensive to end the war, run by the French. A new general called Miguel over to the east at the Chemin des Dames, and uh, he was going to win the war. And he, he failed spectacularly. But to coincide with that, the British were going to attack round about Arras, or Arras, as we probably know it in English. And on the left was the Canadian Corps. Now, Canada, as everybody probably knows, made its name as a nation at Vimy Ridge in, on Easter Day, 1917. On the immediate right was the Highland Division, looking after their flank. Didn't have a perfect day, but took most of its objectives. And further down the line, there were other Scottish divisions. There was actually the 51st, 34th Division with a lot of Scots in it, then the 9th Scottish Division and the 15th Scottish Division. It was the highest percentage of Scottish battalions ever on the battlefield in the First World War. About 34% of the battalions represented were Scottish from about 11% of the population, which accounts for a very high casualty rate then and later in the war. After some initial success in uh, April of 1917, the battalion then focused around a place called R-O-E-U-X, which I would say is a byword for the worst of attritional close combat, probably, in the First World War. It was backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards, very close, very ugly, a lot of death and destruction. It was concentrated around a building, a set of industrial buildings next to um, a railway line known as the Chemical Works, or the jocks called it the Comical Works because they had a dire sense of humour. But it was backwards and forwards hideous with the scent of battle and the dead of battle lying there day after day after day, the heat 
Um, it's recorded that at one point in the battle, a Prussian soldier and a Scottish soldier were found locked with their teeth in each other, and they'd both been killed by artillery fire. It was a filthy, disgusting battle, and the losses on both sides in the British Army and the German Army were colossal, because each had this very determined view that if you gave ground, you had to get it back, and you had to counterattack. So that was the, the Ruhr battle. And then, again, as always, as the summer, uh, the summer season came along for big assaults and great plans, Haig came up with this idea of um, putting the Germans off the Passchendaele Ridge to the east of Ypres, or Ypres or Wipers, depending on who you're listening to. And um, the Highland Division got involved in that too. Again, they were quite lucky. They were not there as often as other divisions or for as long as other divisions. And they, the first day, the first time they were up the line, they, they did what they had to do as they did the second time. But the awful thing about Ypres, the third battle of Ypres, as people who listen to this kind of thing probably know, is that no matter how good the weather was before the jumping off day, it usually poured. And inevitably it did. And it's a measure of the desperation of the staff that they reported, uh, I think in the second phase of the battle, that somewhere uh, a soldier in the Gordon Highlanders had fallen into a shell hole and had quack quacked like a duck and all the way out of the line back to rest. He was quacking and his pals who were left were quacking too. And I've always thought that was a, the staff clutching at very forlorn straws to try and make the whole thing seem better than it was because Passchendaele is generally agreed to be the nadir of the British Army's experience in France. Then the Highland Division was switched down to um, the last big offensive of the year. Now, tanks, as most people know, had been deployed in the Western Front since uh, 1916. Been, they had been deployed in penny numbers. They were very, very slow. They were mechanically not very good. And um, they'd always been deployed in mud, into which they generally sank or were moving so slowly that they were an easy target for German fuel artillery even average German fuel artillery. So the plan was to have a massive raid led by tanks down near Cambrai. And the big plan was not to saturate the whole landscape, which was fairly unbroken. Normally you saturated the landscape with artillery. It became impassable for tanks and difficult for infantry. And if it rained, it could drown you. And they had all that experience at Passchendaele. And the plan was a raid to Cambrai and back with tanks, and artillery, tanks, artillery, and cavalry who were going to break through and go to Cambrai. And the Highland Division was one of the frontline divisions deployed in this attack. Unfortunately and uncharacteristically, when the attack went in on the 20th of November, 1917, at the end of the day, the divisions on either side of the Highland Division were ahead of it, and the Highland Division was stuck at a place called Flankier, 
top of the ridge. Been quite a controversial thing, but the problem was that the tanks that were supporting the Highland Division went ahead, obviously, as they must, and were unlucky enough to meet the only German field artillery regiment which had trained in anti-tank warfare and had already deployed against the French in an anti-tank role. And when they heard that the tanks were coming, they rolled their guns out of their gun pits, had them on the surface, and at one particular juncture, six British tanks went over the ridge, one behind the other, and were just knocked off by the, the German artillery. And because the German field artillery there was anti-tank trained, the tanks were wiped out. Now, the controversy about that is that General Harper used different tank tactics and infantry cooperation tactics with the tanks from the advice given by the tank corps. And um, I've had heated arguments about that in my time. The tank corps wanted the infantry to walk behind the tanks in two parallel lines, more or less in the tracks of the tanks, and follow them through the barbed wire and over the enemy trenches. Harper, on the other hand, had formed the opinion that tanks were kind of bullet magnets and that of all these people standing right behind the tanks, albeit in long Indian file lines, was asking for a lot of damage to his infantry. So he wanted his infantry to deploy uh, abreast about 100 yards roughly behind the tanks. His argument being that every infantryman could see his front, didn't have somebody in front of him blocking his view, and every infantryman could then engage the enemy when they saw the enemy. Interestingly, the division on the Highland Divisions left the 62nd Division deployed similar, similar tactics, but did not come across the same artillery regiment as the, the Highland Division. So con controversy has always gone on over that. But the fact of the matter is by the end of the following day, the second day of the Battle of Cambrai, the Highland Division was further forward with the 62nd Division than any other divisions in the British Army at a place called Fontaine, Notre Dame, for, from which they were ejected. So that was 1917 and the, and the famous Battle of Cambrai. What happens to the uh, division in the final year of the war? Well, they had a bad year, like very, very many others in the British Army that year. Uh, everybody, I think, sensed that because Russia had gone out of the war and because the Americans were fairly slow in getting into the war and had taken the line that they were not going to allow their troops to be used piecemeal by the French and the British, and they were going to save up the resources until the United States Army could take its own place on the battlefield. With the Russians out of the war, the, the Germans decided to hold the Eastern Front with second-rate or third-rate third troops and bring the best of the troops across to the Western Front and try and finish the war in the spring of 1918. Uh, and I think everybody sensed that that was coming. The Highland Division, in, in line with many others, was line-holding round about the Fleckier salient, which was the residual part of the second part of the Cambrai battle, after the Germans had counterattacked. 
Many of the trench lines were on the forward sides of slopes, on the wrong side of slopes, making it difficult for them to retreat. They had, however, dug in very well. They had, um, because Harper had been a well engineer, they had a very comprehensive system of trench digging throughout their entire area. And uh, one Scottish soldier who had visited a neighboring division came back and said, you can tell they're not the Highland Division. The trenches aren't as good you know, as the Highland Division's trenches. Nothing, I don't think, um, could have stopped what happened at the opening of the battle because the Germans, again, as experts probably know, the Germans had brought their artillery up as close to the lines as they could. Their field artillery, their medium artillery, and their heavy artillery were all as close as they could get. They had been sighted on maps. The targets had been picked out in maps, and there had been no sighting shots. It was the Bruce Mueller system. He was their artillery guru at the time. And when the barrage opened in March of 1918, it reached as far back as it possibly could. It absolutely deluged the front line with artillery fire. It took out telephone positions and things in the rear headquarters, all sorts of things, up to miles behind and totally disrupted communication within the British forces. And then the Germans advanced, their infantry, who were stormtroops. They were very lightly equipped, light weapons, lots of hand grenades, and under no circumstances did they stop to take on strong points. They infiltrated as far into the British lines as they possibly could. Now, there had been a day of the old professional British Army, and they might have been able to cope, but most of them had been killed in 1914 and 15. Practically everybody who was on the Western Front was a, a wartime person accustomed to trench warfare, fighting in a line of trenches with other people in trenches on either side. And when the breakthrough took place, everybody along the line started to fall back because the Germans penetrating through the front line then came towards the back of the front line and the only way out that people could see was to filter back to the second line and the support line or wherever. And so there was a kind of reverse domino effect going along all the Western Front where the attack took place. <laughs> Cuddled up from the, the left flank, the Germans went into the trenches on the left, the music flamethrowers, and so on, got over the survivors. And there were very few survivors from the Soviet bombardment. And so the division started to fall back. And for a couple of days, it was fighting in residual trench systems of their own divisional area. And after that, like most others, they were in retreat. And sometimes quite chaotic retreat. There's absolutely no doubt that now and again, the order was run for it, get back to you know that hill there or the trench over that hill. And that went on for five days, which was a considerable length of time. And it's calculated that the Highland Division in that exercise lost over 5,000 people. 
perhaps half of these were just missing. Now, whether they were missing obliterated or missing surrendered, nobody knew at the time, but they'd gone. And the division, like others, was in some disarray by the time it had moved back over a week of sustained combat. So they, they didn't have a good, didn't have a good time. Um, the general officer commanding the 19, 19th division complained that you know the Highland Division just kept going back and leaving people in the lurch. But everybody was saying the same thing. But the then general of the Highland Division, um, Carter Campbell, he actually told his corps commander that they could not be kept in the line. They were done. And, and one has to recognize that. So that was a bad start to 1918. They were then shifted to a quiet sector in the north, um, which uh, didn't usually dry out till the late spring. And that's where the Germans chose to put in their next major attack. Now, when the division went up there, it was the exhausted remains of what had been an elite division. Uh, replacements were coming in from all sorts of sources from the UK to, to beef them up. Um, but the Germans attacked a point where the Portuguese army was in the line. And the Portuguese army were fairly demoralized because a lot of the men, I don't think, knew why they were there. And um, they, their discipline wasn't particularly good, as witnessed by neutral people. And they broke, uh, and the Highland Division had to try and patch the line, and frankly, you know, didn't do all that well. Again, like many other divisions, it was made up by this time, of course, largely of conscripts who were um, slightly different, presumably, in their view of what it was all about than the old volunteers had been at the beginning of the war. So they took, they took a pretty bad beating. So, Colin, the, the, the 51st Division got hit twice during the German Spring Offensive, once um, in March and then in, in, in April. What happened to the unit after that? Well, after that, they were very rapidly um, built up again with uh, officers and men because the, the system was very efficient for that kind of thing. And one of the last phases of the German offensive was against the French round about Reims, to the west of Reims. And the French were pushed back quite seriously. There were French and Italian troops, interestingly enough, there at the time. And they were pushed back. And because the French had sent help to help the British with the March of April offensives, the British felt they had to send help to the French. And part of that help were the 62nd Division and the 51st Highland Division. And they were sent down to the area known as Champagne. Um, and they had, a, they had a lovely trip, you know, from, from the north of France by train, flanking the north of Paris and going through undisturbed countryside round to Champagne. And then they were put off the trains and had to march towards the north in order to try and push the Germans back round about the river Arg, which has really got to be looped up to find it. And they, as they, as they moved through one of the villages, apparently uh, two or three Scottish soldiers discovered somebody's cellar. And they, they were selling the stuff at two francs a bottle to grateful Scottish soldiers as they moved up the line. But they moved into the line and they had to do one of the most specialized forms of fighting that there is. They ended up doing a lot of fighting in forests 
very thick forests in the area, and it was a real struggle. But they held the line with French, um, either well, sixty second division on the right and the the French on the left. They pushed the Germans gradually back over a number of days, but the casualty rate was then was very high. About two and a half thousand Scottish soldiers went down in that particular attack. After that, they were then diverted in August and September to the old grounds round about the Greenland Hill, which are a very low hill that dominated the old 1917 battlefield, and they took and they took Greenland Hill on the flank of the on the flank of the Canadians, which is. So, what did the unit do in the final hundred days offensive? Well, in the final hundred days offensive, it was working its way with the rest of the advancing British forces up towards uh, Valenciennes, the Battle of um, the Cell, it's known as, and they were doing river crossings and pushing forward fairly fairly slowly, like most everybody else. The Canadians were on their left flank and the Highland Division was on their right flank. It, it did form a connection, um, the, the Canadian thing and the Scottish thing, because a lot of the Canadian regiments, as you probably know, were Canadian Scottish regiments. Um, and they fought side by side up towards the Longsienne. And the last battle, they were tired. There's no doubt they were tired by the end. But they fought to the south of the Longsien at a place called Mont Hoy, H-U-O-Y, a kind of temple south of the Longsien, which they got onto and then were pushed off. And then shortly after that, they were taken completely out of the line. And thereafter, the Canadians deployed against it. Whereas the Highland Division had only used its own artillery, because that's all it was allowed to do, the, the Canadians deployed their entire core artillery in the area and then didn't have a walkover, but had a, a much easier um, resolution to the problem of Mount Hoy. So they were out of the line at the end of the war, and what they did between coming out of the line and the 11th of November as they had moved in to that area, they'd been liberating French villages, and they set to feeding the French villages, um, which was quite primitively done. They would find an old cooking boiler or something, or a washhouse boiler, the kind that used to exist in those days, and they would clean it out, and then they would find, go around the gardens and find vegetables and clean them up and find a dead horse somewhere and um, make soup. Uh, and this went very well, and they fed thousands of people along with the, one of the neighbouring divisions in the period immediately before the armistice was declared. And then, of course, the armistice was declared and everybody went a little mad for a day or two and then just wanted home. The subtitle of your book is Engine of Destruction. Now, you've already commented on that the division had a very good reputation. What was the basis for this, this reputation and what made it an elite formation? Well, first of all, there's a, there's a kind of discussion about how good it was or how bad it was. And, of course, people who are very academic and very statistically minded, and I don't count myself amongst them, um, you know, have tried to analyse how good divisions were in the First World War. Somewhere about October of 1917, the word went round the Highland Division that a German list had been found 
of the most to be feared British divisions, top of which was the Highland Division, followed by the Guards Division, followed by the 29th Division. The unfortunate thing about that is that nobody on the earth has ever seen it, okay? And I think that caused a bit of controversy at the time. And one of the things I was able to unearth putting this book together was a, a genuine German intelligence list of January 1918 rating all the British and Empire divisions as uh, excellent uh, assault divisions, good assault divisions, assault divisions, not very good assault divisions, and not assault divisions. So there's a grading of all those divisions. And there are 15 very good assault divisions, amongst whom are numbered some Australian and Canadian divisions, the 51st Highland, the 9th Scottish, the London Division, you know, various, a, a good cross-section, the Naval Division, that's the 63rd Division. There are 15 divisions recognised by the enemy as being amongst the best. What made the Highland Division what it was? It was the only thing in the world called the Highland Division. It was primarily Scottish, and right to the end of the war, as far as it was humanly feasible, all the reinforcements were Scottish. It was the only kilted, totally kilted division on the Western Front where all the infantry wore the kilt, and that made them unique. They were also, you know, based, Scottish-based. Before they got there, they had a kind of common bond of being from Scotland, not all necessarily from the Highlands, because the Highlands couldn't have sustained the number of people who were put through the Highland Division. Good old regimental tradition, I think, that was taught to them uh, as they arrived in the training depot, which was largely in Ripon with the 64th Division. These factors all added up. And a wee bit of being a minority amongst a majority to have to prove, you know, that you're just that little bit as good or better than everybody else. A wee bit of the Scots call it Here's Teus was like us. Who's Teus? Who's like who? I'm sorry, I'll say that again. <laughs> Here's Teus was like us. Guys, you and Who's like us? Nobody and anybody who is is dead. You know, a wee bit of arrogance, I suppose. And how many casualties did the division sustain during the Great War? Well, in 1919, President Poincaré of France spoke at Glasgow University and he enumerated battle by battle what the casualties were. And I, I knew where to find that last night. So I sorted it up and there were 27,500 to 28,000 casualties. Now, whether these are all dead or not, I don't know. But I certainly know that the casualty rate in, in a couple of sample battalions, which I looked at for the book, were enormous. The four Seaforth Highlanders who came from Ross and Cromarty uh, in the course of the war, given that a battalion was about a thousand men to begin with, they claimed to have lost or had over 300 officers and over 3,000 men served in the battalion in the course of the war. In other words, they lost about three to four times the original strength in the course of the war. And finally, Colin, where can people get your book from? Well, they can get them from any reputable bookshop or they can get them from um, the usual sources on the internet. 
The title is the 51st Highland Division in the Great War, Engine of Destruction, Colin Campbell, and published by Pen and Sword. Colin, thank you very much for your time. Okay. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.